Let's think about this question. Who is responsible for Jesus' death according to the Gospels? Who is responsible for Jesus' death according to the Gospels? Now, if you look in Luke, he tells you in Luke 9.22, Jesus that is, that he has to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. So there's this sense of, okay, there's some responsibility among the Jewish leaders. There's rejection that he was going to experience and even being killed. In Luke 9.44, Jesus says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Sounds quite broad. Doesn't sound like, all right, chief priests and elders. and So it's not that specific. It seems as if there's this group, the hands of men, as if it's picturing people more generally. It tells us in Luke 17.25 that he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so, you know, this generation, the generation of Jesus' contemporaries, not even limited to the chief priests and the leaders, even going throughout cities where he had performed miracles, there was such pervasive unbelief that he, that he saw. In Luke 18, 32, he says that the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And it's, it's interesting if you look in Luke's gospel and say, Luke, who kills Jesus? Who's responsible for delivering him over? Well, for Luke, he's answering the question in, a, in several ways by reporting the teachings of Christ. And because the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin are responsible. And in, in a sense, the hands of men refer to groups not limited to these religious leaders, and they're responsible. This generation, he says in Luke 17, 25, and the Gentiles in Luke 18. Jews and Gentiles are responsible. The Sanhedrin and leaders, but also the soldiers of Rome. And yes, even the more broadly generation of Jesus' contemporaries. All of these are right answers. I think we could say, not only with Luke's gospel, with the other gospels and the letters of uh, the apostles, Jesus has gone to the cross, not only because of the wrongs that the Jews have done or the Romans have done, but Jesus has come because the nations have opposed him. By the Jews and Gentiles coming against the deliverer, it's as if the nations are coming against Christ, but Christ has come for the nations. It's the nations who put him there. It's our sin that put him there. And so the way to answer the question, who's responsible for Jesus' death, there's more than one right way to answer it that doesn't contradict the other right answers the Gospels give. When we look at Luke 23, we're seeing some responsibility laid at the feet of the Roman Empire and the role that they play. I said to you in, uh, this morning, and I think in last Sunday night's message too, that um, there are three stages to Jesus' Jewish trial. An appearance before Annas, an appearance before Caiaphas, a verdict from the Sanhedrin. And the Roman stage of trial also has what we might call three phases or stages. The scene with Jesus and the Romans is first before Pilate, and then number two before Herod, and then three back before Pilate. So Pilate and Herod and Pilate. What we'll look at tonight 
are the first two of those three Roman stages. Where Pilate and then Herod Antipas behold Jesus and ask him questions. And there is some back and forth. So two of the three stages of Rome considered tonight in these 12 verses. Um, Let's look at Jesus before Pilate. This is stage one and it's in verses one through five. We're told that then the whole company of them arose. That's the company of the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish council who has risen up together. They've got their verdict in the bag. They believe Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. And they arose and they bring him over to Pilate. They want Jesus to die. They need to convince Pilate that Jesus is violating Roman law and order. Pilate, you see, why would he be someone to appeal to? Why would he be necessary for this trial proceeding? Pilate is a name that the Gospels know as someone who is in leadership during this, Roman, this period of the Roman Empire. He's sometimes called a procurator or a governor where he has some jurisdiction over the regions and responsibilities that include managing finances within the Roman Empire in the region and maintaining law and order in the region he's in. In order for Pilate to execute someone, he must be convinced that this person is a threat to the Roman peace, what was sometimes called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the law and order and societal good, that someone is a rising threat to that, an insurrectionist of sorts, someone who's engaging in treasonous activity against the emperor, or at least is planning accordingly. So when the whole company of the Sanhedrin arises, they know exactly where they need to go. It's not like they say, okay, we hadn't thought this far. What do we do next? No, they know exactly what they need to do next. They need to take Jesus to Pilate to present a case to Pilate. And Pilate has the kind of discretion where he could call for an execution. And so they bring him to Pilate. Now, you should know that Pilate's history with the Jews is a bit checkered. And by this I mean they don't just have some peachy history together where every goings-on between the Jews and the Pilate has just gone well. In fact, one historian named Philo says that Pilate was an inflexible, stubborn, and cruel person to the eyes of the Jews. Why would this have been any kind of description of Pilate in the ancient world? Well, there are a few reasons for this. I'm going to cite a couple uh, scholars here that give us some insight into Pilate's dealings with the Jews. There was one occasion in Jewish history where he brought in uh, pictures and flags with the picture and bust of the emperor Tiberius on them in regions where the Jews were banning images um, and would have been easily offended by it. And yes, they were easily and greatly offended by it. They staged a five-day protest at Pilate's residence. It was a nonviolent protest. But Pilate gave orders to slay the protesters in the stadium if they didn't move. So they stretched out their throats, daring him to follow through. And instead of following through, he withdrew the images from the area. But it did create what were some ongoing tensions between Pilate and the people. Another instance would be, and I quote, he financed the construction of a 23-mile aqueduct to Jerusalem with funds from the temple treasury. 
And Jews protested the use of the temple funds for this particular public project. And they were angry and protested. And he ensured that large numbers of them were slain with brutality, even brutality that exceeded his original orders. Many were trampled to death. It was a horrific event that Josephus records in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews. Uh, We also know from Luke 13, there was some event in Pilate's interaction with the Jews where Galileans were put to death and he had mixed blood with the sacrifices of uh, of Galileans. Uh, it seems that he mixed the blood of those who had been slain with sacrifices. And uh, and if you remember anything about Levitical procedures and regulations, um, dealing with the blood of animals was very very um, was very very important, and to deal with it properly. And here in in uh, this third example, there's this outrageous um, series of deaths at uh, Pilate's oversight. What, what some might have called the final straw during his relationship with the Jews was an unprovoked attack on Samaritans. They were making a pilgrimage to a mountain and some were killed, others fled, and others were taken captive. And among the captives, some of the most respected were put to death. So when I say that uh, Pilate was not on good terms with all the Jews. There's some history there. There there is some pressure that Pilate has to not further provoke Jews, which can explain why things later in Luke 23 go the way they do. That even Pilate personally believes at this point in his relationship, it's better for him politically to give in to the Jews because they have a history And it's a history that's been marked by death and violence. So Pilate has the authority of life over death. And in verse 1, the whole company brings Jesus to him. To him with a history that they have together. And in verse 2, they begin to accuse Jesus before Pilate. And their accusations are threefold. Accusation number one, we found this man misleading our nation. Accusation number two, he is forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Accusation number three, he is saying he himself is Christ, a king. Let's reflect on these three accusations. All of them are major accusations. They know exactly the buttons to push for Pilate to say, wait a second. Are these things true? Let's investigate this. Are there, is there testimony? Are there witnesses? The first question, the first accusation, we found this man misleading our nation. This, re, this presents Jesus as an agitator of the masses. That the nation, which is not just this little region around Jerusalem, but the Israelites, that throughout Galilee and all the way south to Judea, this nation of Israel is being misled by this agitator. This person who disturbs the peace of their law, and therefore he is creating disgruntledness. Well, Pilate has to take that seriously. Keeping law and order and peace in in the Roman Empire matters. And if the Jews who have a history with him of violence and protest, if they are angered by this and here the leaders are accusing Jesus, Pilate can't say, well, what do I care? He has a vested interest in this situation. Second accusation. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. 
Now, this, not only is the first accusation not true, where Jesus is causing, you know, disruption among the empire to where the Roman Empire is being undermined by, you know, what he's teaching among the Jews. This is a, uh, an exaggerated accusation in the first place. Accusation number two is false on the face of it. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Let's just rewind to earlier in that week. Where in Luke chapter 20, on Tuesday of Passion Week, scribes and chief priests brought him spies who pretended to be sincere and said, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly the word of God and way of God. And in verse 22, is it lawful to give to Caesar or not? And he called for a denarius, he said, whose likeness is on it. They said, Caesar's. He said, then give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? When you read an accusation, he's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. It is completely contradicting Jesus' own instruction to them. He actually said to give tribute to Caesar. So they are knowingly exaggerating and even presenting false testimony to accuse Jesus. Why would Pilate care about that? Not only is accusation number one hitting on the idea of peace among easily disgruntled Jews in the nation... Pilate is responsible for finances in this region. And if someone comes to Pilate saying that Jesus is teaching, don't give tribute to Caesar. Well, this hits at the kind of thing Pilate's responsible over and for. Pilate has to take this seriously. So the charge is quite clever. One writer puts it this way. The charge means that Jesus brings financial risk to Rome and to Pilate. As a financial administrator. She's a very clever group of people. They know what to bring up to Pilate that's going to get him riled up. And then the third accusation. Jesus is saying that he himself is Christ, a king. We saw this in the last sermon, didn't we, in Luke 22. Are you the Christ? If you are, tell us. And this language about kingship and enthronement. Jesus uses this language about enthronement from Daniel 7. They ask him about being the son of God in this capacity. And they take his answer to be an affirmation and therefore blasphemy because they disbelieve it. And in verse 2 of our passage tonight then, when it says he calls himself Christ a king, well, there is a, a strong manner of truth to this. However, the kingship language is not just up for definition. He's king according to the particular Old Testament prophecies. He, he has uh, uh, an ongoing discussion in, uh, in John with Pilate about his kingship and how he is a king but not of a kingdom of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. But charging someone with being a king, that's a very electric charge. And the reason for that is in the Roman Empire, nobody is to call themselves any kind of ruler with any kind of authority and jurisdiction Unless the emperor is over it, unless the emperor approves, unless they are in keeping with Roman interests and someone who's a rogue leader milling up interests of some kind of movement that's calling him a king. That's dangerous to Roman interests. And Pilate cares about that, too. So we spent this time reflecting on these accusations so that we can notice how in these ways, in verse 2, these three accusations are the very buttons that need to be pushed on Pilate and the Jewish leaders know it. Very clever. If you uh, think about Acts 17 with Paul and Silas, 
Some have noted what an interesting um, overlap with what the Apostle Paul is charged with. In Acts 17.6, it says that these people um, have turned the whole world upside down. They've come here also. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, and they're saying there's another king named Jesus. Years later then, even in Acts 17, the notion of going against the decrees and administrators of Rome was no safe thing. You could face not just a trial, but death. Well, that's exactly what these leaders are hoping for, right? Let's bring him before Pilate. We'll get Pilate all riled up. And in this day, when verdicts are going to be released from his tribunal, he will declare that Jesus is to be crucified. That's what they want. So Pilate just asks Jesus directly in verse 3, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. Now, of course, Pilate lacks an appropriate context for him to understand all that Jesus is meaning. And so there will be some uh, back and forth in John chapter 18 and 19 where the kingship of Jesus is discussed. And I just want to point to John 18 for a moment and in John 18, 33 in particular. John 18, 33, Pilate entered his headquarters and said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus says, my kingdom. So imply that, okay, from that he's a king. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world. Readers will sometimes mistake Jesus' responses of, you have said so, as Jesus refusing to answer. It is, though, a kind of answer. It's not like, yes, I am, in the way that we would often think of a positive response. But he is not refusing those words. He's allowing those words to in some way describe the situation. But Pilate, in the way he has said so, isn't conceiving a king like Jesus is a king. You know, the the kings of the earth, they just know might and power and subduing and overthrowing enemies and battles and skirmishes and treaties. And they know what earthly battles and kingships which rise and fall are like. Jesus is not a king of this world in that way. His kingdom is not of this world. It's of heaven. When Jesus says then to Pilate in our passage tonight in Luke 23, verse 3, you have said so, it is an an acknowledgement of those words on his situation. There have been those who have written about this scene, and they've suggested that confession is, is something that Jesus is being called to to do, right? Okay, so are you, are you not? Even earlier in the Jewish Sanhedrin. If you are, then tell us. So they're looking for a kind of confession from him. But Jesus seems in a way to use language that avoids saying the kinds of things and in the kind of way that they want, even though the the, uh, descriptions he allows aren't quite understood by those who are the parties in in the same room. But one writer suggests confession was speech of people who had succumbed to the power of another. 
that to simply allow those words to be said to him and questions put to him and to simply succumb to the moment and give those words right back to them with all of these affirmations would be a kind of acknowledgement of superior power in the room. And perhaps the manner of Jesus's behavior and speech refuses to portray that he is succumbing to greater powers. That he is not denying any of these titles, though they do not understand in that room all that those titles mean. Jesus is a king. His kingdom is not of this world. And so when they use language like son of God or son of David to Jesus in Luke 22... Or, or Christ. See, he didn't use son of David phrase, but Christ, which is the equivalent. Or in Luke 23 about a king of the Jews. This language is speaking at something that is true. More has to be understood and processed by the people in the rooms. Well, Pilate's response in verse 4, he says to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And I think the reason this back and forth hasn't alarmed uh, Pilate is because In the Gospel of John, Jesus has insisted his kingdom is not of this world. So here's what Pilate knows, and we can see this by implication in Luke 23. Pilate knows if Jesus is a king, he's not any threatening king to the Roman Empire. In other words, he's not a king that's about to take up arms with an army and lead a charge against Rome and seek to overthrow Caesar. That is not Jesus' strategy. Therefore, if the religious leaders have said, oh, he claims to be a king, Pilate's saying, well, I don't think he's guilty of these kinds of things that you're implying. I find no guilt in this man. Oh, man, verse 4, y'all, verse 4 is an astounding declaration by a Roman leader. I find no guilt in this man. Now, he doesn't view Jesus, therefore, as not speaking of himself as a king or having a kingdom. But he's not some zealot with physical violence and an army that's ready to charge the powers that be. That's not what's happening. In fact, he's very much like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, verse 9. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. As Pilate looks at Jesus and hears of what Jesus' kingdom is like and knows the lack of violent things that Jesus has been promoting, he looks at this and says, I find no guilt. It's as if there is no violence and no deceit in his actions or mouth. In verse 5, they must have felt like their opportunity was slipping away. Can you imagine the outrage of the Jewish leaders? They've been up all night. Folks, okay, they've had a long night with this treasonous, crowd-stirring, demonically animated man, okay, this troublemaker of Israel, and they had a long night with him, and they finally get him to a pilot, and he says, I find no guilt in this man. What a, what a balloon-bursting moment for them. It is just slipping through their fingers like sand on the ground. And it says in verse 5, they were urgent. Oh, I bet they were. I bet they were trying to rouse one another up from dozing off and trying to get anybody that could speak to speak and all at once if necessary to overwhelm the scene. He stirs up the people in verse 5. Teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. 
They're just reiterating what a nuisance and divisive figure he is. And he's saying, it's not just a local problem, Pilate. It's not a local problem. He has been all over the place throughout this whole land causing mayhem, Pilate. And they are urgent. The language stirring up the people. Where? All throughout Judea. From Galilee in the north, even to this place in the south. He is a troublemaker of Israel. Now, if you're Pilate, you have just heard them say, he has done a work in teaching and miracles, this uh, stirring up. Jesus' activity has included Galilee. And a light bulb comes on. Well, I know somebody who's got some jurisdiction on, over Galilee who's here in Jerusalem right now. Herod Antipas. And I find no guilt in this man, but if Jesus has been doing things around Galilee, then we're going to put Jesus before this man. So there are probably a couple reasons why Pilate is sending Jesus now to Herod Antipas. Number one... It is because Jesus has apparently been doing work where Herod Antipas would have some oversight and some vested interest in keeping things calm and and subduing any riots and divisiveness and, and movements that seem to be rogue and out of control. So getting Herod Antipas to weigh in can be helpful. But reason number two also seems to not, it doesn't contradict reason number one. I think they both can be true. But especially with reason number two, if Pilate doesn't have to be the only one making a decision about this, that can be helpful. In fact, for Pilate, if he finds no guilt in this man, then maybe he can pass the buck, so to speak. And maybe he can let somebody else share in some responsibility. After all, the Jews brought Jesus to him first and not to Herod. And so now, not because the Jews have asked for it, but because Pilate deems it prudent that Herod weigh in. And that if there is some cause to put Jesus to death, maybe Herod Antipas can figure that out or know already. What do we need to know then of Herod Antipas? Okay, so verses 6 to 12 give us the appearance of Jesus before Herod Antipas. A strong political maneuver that Pilate has uh, seized upon here. Verse 6, when Pilate heard this, that Jesus had been in Galilee, no doubt, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, just to confirm that. And indeed, of course, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Jesus had ministered in Capernaum. Jesus had done miracles and teachings around the Sea of Galilee. He had cultivated a following among fishermen in Galilee. Oh yes, he is a Galilean. So in verse 7, when Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod, Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Now, Herod was a ruler over part of the promised land, and, uh, and therefore the part of the promised land that he had jurisdiction over was Galilee, and he was something called a tetrarch, or someone who ruled over this portion. His name is Herod Antipas, and I'm emphasizing Antipas to, to separate him from his dad. His dad was also named Herod. Herod the Great is what his dad was called. Herod the Great is the one that received the Magi in Luke 2. Herod the Great is the one in Matthew 2 who called for the Bethlehem infants to be slain in order to get the Christ. Uh, In other words, um, in Luke and in Matthew, Herod the Great, uh, or he received the Magi in in Matthew chapter 2, not in Luke 2. But in, um, in, in Luke and in Matthew, at the birth of Jesus, Herod the Great is this vile ruler, full of paranoia. 
And of his ten wives, one of his sons is Herod Antipas. So Herod Antipas is the one under whom John the Baptist died. What's fascinating about Herod Antipas is Herod Antipas has interacted with John the Baptist and will interact with Jesus. Quite a striking thing for any political ruler to have contact with someone personally. Having personal interaction with John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, and with the Messiah himself. It's not like just any old ruler of the ancient world would have that experience. Herod Antipas does. Herod Antipas is this one in verse 7. He is that one that is called Herod here and is in Jerusalem at the time of the feast. Now, why would that be the case? Because during feast times, it was popular for political leaders and rulers to make an appearance in Jerusalem. That's not where Herod Antipas would normally reside, but he's there. And there are nearby palaces and homes and residences where such a meeting place could take place and where Herod is most naturally staying. This is the Herod Antipas whose wife, uh, Herodias, called for the head of John the Baptist at the banquet. It's that Herod. You can read that episode in Mark 14, I'm sorry, Matthew 14, and in Mark 6, verses 14 to 29, the martyrdom of John the Baptist. Herod Antipas was intrigued by John the Baptist, wasn't he? He wasn't eager to put him to death. But he had made an oath at that birthday banquet that whatever his, his daughter or his, uh, his uh, stepdaughter had asked, it's uh, uh, Herodias' daughter, and they had colluded together to get uh, John the Baptist dead. And Herod had made a promise. And he was going to face public shame and humi- humiliation if he violated his worth, word publicly. And so he sent the executioner to retrieve the head of John the Baptist. But it tells us earlier in the Gospels that Herod had often gone to listen to John. Have you reflected on that? There's no indication that Pilate or any of these other religious leaders were actually wanting to sit down. Now, what was that scene like for Herod Antipas to go and listen to John the Baptist? And what we're told in verse 9 is that Herod Antipas was eager to see Jesus. He had often hoped to have that opportunity. He had been intrigued by the prophet John and had longed to see Jesus. And now at last, Jesus is going to be before him. We know in um, Herod Antipas' day that uh, the Pharisees had tried to warn or threaten Jesus with the language in Luke 13, 31. Herod wants to kill you. And there's dispute on whether, now was that Herod Antipas' actual heart toward Jesus? Or were the Pharisees trying to sow um, suspicion and fear? Herod Antipas seems quite interested in seeing Jesus in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done. Well, what's the reputation of Jesus consist of? It consists of primarily two things. His authoritative teaching, which was captivating to people. He wasn't speaking like their scribes. He spoke with authority and answered questions that even the religious leaders were stunned by. Pronounced forgiveness of sins to the lost. I mean, the the teachings and instruction of Jesus, that was one aspect. Number two, his miracles. Of course, that would be part of his reputation. 
Jesus performs signs and wonders throughout the promised land in Galilee all the way to Judea. And, uh, and so this miracle worker has with his teachings alongside of it a reputation that someone like Herod says, well, I want to meet this guy. And in verse 8, here's what Herod's hoping. I'm hoping that he'll give me a little private miracle right here, actually. I'd like to see one of these signs. And so Jesus comes before Herod Antipas, and in verse 9, he, Herod, questioned Jesus at some length. But Jesus, that's the he there at the end of verse 9, but Jesus made no answer. Now, if we rewound the tape to John the Baptist's day, when John was alive, the, the gospel never tells us Herod Antipas went over and over to John, but John just wouldn't give him any answer. There seems to be an expectation in those narratives that there's actually teaching and words that Herod Antipas is listening to from John. That's what the text tells us. So Herod has some precedent. And he says, okay, Jesus is coming in. I've got, I've got questions I want to ask him about this. I want to see a sign. So what kind of questions is Herod asking? Well, the details aren't given, but in verse 8, he wants to see some sign done by him. And he questioned him at some length. Likely, these are superficial questions that would hover above the level of, would you perform a miracle? Would you, would you do that? Would you do this? Would you perform this? Can you do this kind of sign? Questioning Jesus at some length. But see, John the, John the prophet had earlier exhorted Herod Antipas to do what was right. John the Baptist had confronted Herod for his unlawful taking of his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. John had applied the scriptures and the word of God and called for Herod to do what was right and to repent and to do righteousness. But you wonder, as those months had unfolded and years pass, whatever timetable we're looking at here, in verses 8 and 9, here's Herod's moment to sit before the one or stand before the one. That John the Baptist had called the Lamb of God. The one that would take away the sin of the world. The one that John the Baptist's ministry prepared the way for and was a forerunner of. Here Herod has his opportunity. There does not seem to be a display of repentance. There does not seem to be grief and sorrow. If there were any positive questions where Herod is pleading for truth and to learn Jesus' response demonstrates that that would only be superficial. These questions are not from the heart of a person that is seeking the truth. Herod is just seeking a sign, you see. And earlier in Luke's gospel, and the other gospels confirm this too, Jesus says it's an evil generation that's just seeking a sign. That is just interested in the performative aspect of the wonders and not contemplating and being stirred in faith toward the one who is performing them. It seems that in verses 8 and 9, we are to see a superficial display of Herod. Not of spiritual depth. Not of genuine curiosity in the seeking after truth. So when Herod hopes for a sign, one is not given. When questions are put to Jesus, Jesus makes no answer. And I want you to think about that. How disappointing Herod would have been. He had longed to see Jesus. Hope for this day. And now it's here. And he can't get that man in front of him to say a single thing. Jesus made no answer. He didn't make just a few answers. And he'd say, well, you know, you listed a lot of things here. Let me just take part of it. 
he made no answer. Again, demonstrating that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted and he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb led to slaughter. When you see Jesus not making an answer, the gospel writers are trying to show you, even through allusion and echo of the Old Testament, Jesus is the servant of Isaiah 53, not opening his mouth. So you should look at this and say, well, man, you know, I know it's been a long night for Jesus, but why is he being so rude? You know, here's a here's a Herod Antipas, this political leader. Can't Jesus do, just give him one answer? You, you, rather than seeing it in some kind of personality conflict or some uh, uh, issue of manners or politeness, instead you should see this through the lens of Isaiah 53. The Jewish and Roman Gentile leaders have been gathering together, together against the anointed one. And he's the servant of the Lord from Isaiah 53, and he opens not his mouth. And it's the surprise of the leaders. It's the surprise. He made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by. Ha! Look who followed. Look at verse 10. Okay, so what I find fascinating and humorous about this is they sent him over and all of the, the chief priests are like, Pilate, okay, okay, he's going where? Okay, where's that? Okay, we'll be right back. And so where are they going? Well, they're following Jesus because they need to make sure that whoever Jesus is talking to, that those accusations against him are clear, that they can make their case, that they can insist on what Jesus has done wrong. So they're in Herod's place right there are the chief priests and the scribes. Okay, they are not giving up. You can admire their persistence. Okay, that's about all they've got going for them is they are not giving up. You don't have to admire their persistence. (laughs) The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. They didn't say, we'll just be right outside. No, right there they are. Relentless. They're relentless and they are accusing Jesus of the same kind of things. Now, what might they be accusing Jesus of? I think something along the lines of he misleads our nation. He tells us not to give tribute to Caesar and he says he's a king. I mean, I bet they haven't tried to be any more original than that. The same stirring, provocative accusations. They are so worried Jesus is going to be released. And later in Luke 23, 15, here's what Pilate is going to say to them. Well, verses 14 and 15, really. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So in our scene tonight, where we've seen Jesus before Pilate and we see Jesus now before Herod, both leaders find no guilt in this man deserving death. That's not to say Herod Antipas isn't put off by Jesus' non-answering state. But that doesn't require crucifixion as a result, okay? So here's Herod Antipas, and even though these people are vehemently accusing Jesus before this Roman leader, it says in Luke 23, 15, Herod found no truth to that charge. Now, Herod is aggravated. Herod's behavior in verse 11 is inexcusable. Look at what he does do. Verse 11 of our passage tonight says, Herod with the soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. The soldiers, no doubt those who are already within Herod's guard, because 
Herod's renown and position would mean he travels with guard. It's not like Herod's just going to travel around by himself. He's got armed soldiers. But also people like the other temple guard and officers that had helped to arrest Jesus. It's been a long night for all of them. And while they have shown contempt and while they have mocked, to that point Herod had not joined in. He joins in here. In verse 11, he joins in with his soldiers treating Jesus with contempt and mocking him. He does not believe that Jesus is who he really claimed to be. And then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent Jesus back to Pilate. I think we should imply, okay, Jesus has an accusation against him that he's a king. Well, let's dress him up like one. If he thinks he's a king, let's make him look like one. Arraying him in splendid clothing is an act of mockery. They're dressing him up like somebody who's playing a part, who's not really that person, but who's just pretending to be. And oh, Jesus, he's pretending to be a king. Well, then he needs a costume for it, doesn't he? He needs to have the clothes. He thinks he's a king. Let's make him look like one. And then he sent him back to Pilate. I wonder if Pilate thought, well, he wasn't wearing that when I sent him to Herod, okay? He's coming back and he's dressed in this clothing. But while Herod and Pilate had a history of their own that was tense and had some animosity, it says in verse 12, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. It reminds us of the chief priests and Pharisees and Sadducees, some of which would have never spent time with one another, but who were brought together because of a common enemy. And here, Herod and Pilate, these rulers in the Roman Empire, Pilate's role and Herod's role, they are friends together that day because of their treatment of Jesus. It's just like, yeah, can you believe this guy? And the accusations against him, what he's portraying himself to be, and now what the people are exaggerating is the case. So while Pilate and Herod do not find Jesus worthy of death, Herod has joined in the mockery of it. I'm reminded of what Luke, the writer, gives us in the book of Acts. Not only does he give us this scene about Herod and Pilate, in Acts chapter 4, here's what we're told in verse 23. When some of these apostles had been released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when their friends heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. And here was their prayer. Let's pay attention to the prayer of Acts 4. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed one. And here's their application and interpretation of Psalm 2 there. Acts 4.27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That's a lot of people named and gathered together against the anointed one. And then they say in their prayer, they did this to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servants. And your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. 
They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak with boldness. You see, they knew that even in the early church, people were gathering together against Jesus. And the way they gathered against Jesus in Acts is they gathered against His people. And when they beheld the boldness of Christ in the gospel story, and when they knew what God had planned to take place, even all the human machinations of Pilate and the Roman leaders and Herod and the Jewish authorities, none of those things were outside the plan and sovereignty of God. Rather, those things were accomplishing what the hand of God intended to bring to pass to the death of Jesus on the cross. And so therefore, the early church thinks about Christ. And they think about those gathering together against the anointed one and say, the Lord was with him and the Lord is with us. Christ was bold and persevered. We can be faithful and we can persevere. Because in Luke 23, if we read that scene in light of Psalm chapter 2, what you see is they gather together against the anointed one, but the Lord in heaven laughs. For the people's plot and they plot in vain. Christ is King of Kings.